man, I was probably like four years old, maybe four or five. Um, I just remember every time I would come to the studio, there was just always um, this little feeling of magic, you know? Uh, it's like the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe when the kids go through the wardrobe and then they're in Narnia or whatever. It had, it had that similar kind of feeling like I knew I was like man it, it just there was a magic to it and I was a kid I, I didn't know what it was but I knew it was something Sonosphere, the podcast that explores the sounds all around us in art and music movements through history. Today, we highlight Royal Studios and High Records for their 60th anniversary this year on this special episode in partnership with the Rock and Soul Museum and Memphis Musicology Podcast. We talk with co-owner and producer Boo Mitchell about his dad, Willie Mitchell's signature sound, and he'll take us on a tour of Royal Studios. We'll also hear from singer-songwriter Don Bryant, Amber Hamilton of the Memphis Music Initiative from legendary recording artist Ann Peebles and local musician Scott Bomar. What makes the royal sound so magical? Let's find out. Join us. We're your hosts. I'm Amy. And I'm Chris. Can you talk about maybe like a resurgence in using studios like royals? How these musicians are seeking out certain studios and trying to replicate these sounds from Willie Mitchell. Do you see a growth of that? I I think musically, you know, people are, you know, they want something with weight. You know, they want something with a history, with a story behind it. Um, and, you know, Memphis, you know, it's a, it's a great place to come make records. Uh, this is Scott Bomar. Royal Studios is a, you you know, you walk in the front door and you feel it when you walk in there. So we are in the lobby of Royal Studios. Um, so it's interesting. The studio side is uh, was built in 1915 as a silent movie theater, it's an old Nickelodeon, and it stayed a theater until I think roughly 1950 and. It was bought in 56 and turned into Royal Studios in 57. Hi, I'm Boo Mitchell. I'm co-owner of Royal Studios, producer, engineer, songwriter. Um, I make music in Memphis and love it. So, um, so Royal Studios was started like a lot of other great things in Memphis. Um, the legendary Sam Phillips had Sun Records and Sam Phillips Recording Service. When Elvis and Johnny Cash uh, left uh, Mr. Phillips in the mid-50s, I think it was 55, 
there were some other people that worked for Sam that wanted to do their own thing. They got local record store owner uh, Joe Coogie that owned Pop Tunes Record Shop. They got him to invest in opening a studio in a record company. So they bought the Royal Theater in 1956, and by 1957, it was opened as Royal Studios in High Records. About a year later, Elvis's bass player, Bill Black, from the Bill Black Combo, he decided to come to Royal in High Records, and Royal was kind of mostly known for its instrumentals back then. Bill Black Combo had some hits, uh, White Silver Sands, and then there was another guy, Jumpin' Gene Simmons, had this hit record called Haunted House that was instrumental. My father, Willie Mitchell, came here in 1958 and was recording he wasn't signed to high records at the time he was signed to home of the blues which was a label on bill street and he was unhappy with that agreement so he got out of it and joe coogie uh, was always a willie mitchell fan so he signed willie mitchell to high records in 1959. the office side where we are was added I think in 1970 or 71. So this side was like three shotgun houses and they fused it <laughs> with the studio. So the studio has offices. So we're in the lobby and it's nice tile and there's this beautiful hardwood on the floor that like all while I was a kid, these floors were covered with carpet. All while my dad was alive and I, got the itch like when when my dad passed in 2010 you know everybody's kind of down and i was like man we gotta liven this place up and i was like well, let's maybe change the carpet so somebody start pulling up the carpet's like holy crap it's hardwood under here <laughs> we didn't even know it so we have these beautiful hardwood floors um we have all these awesome pictures um so this nice uh, picture, the, how Lansky and the Lansky family gave us, um, it's a picture of my dad in the high rhythm section. It's, that picture's probably in 1967, maybe? Um, and it's, they're wearing all custom stuff, Nehru uh, collars and big medallions and stuff. It's, <laughs> it's pretty awesome. Uh, and just lots of other cool pictures. Of by the time he met Al Green in 1968, he was, um, Pop was doing most of the engineering and stuff and had kind of altered the recording room in Royal because he never really liked the way his record sounded. So he started altering the room um, and he got it like he wanted it in 1969, um, which is what it looks like today. Don't turn your back on me. Now that I My name is Don Bryant, and music has always been a part of my life. Willie Mitchell had a group working with him, and something happened. Uh, the group, I don't know, they did, the group uh, broke up. Uh, 
somebody that had heard us told Willie about us and asked if we could come and audition for him. And we did. We went to audition for him, and he said, okay, I'll give y'all a try. And uh, Mr. Don Bryant, who is Ann People's husband and the co-author of I Can't Stand the Rain, but he's also the first uh, vocalist that Willie Mitchell recorded. So Don Bryant was in my dad's band like in the 50s. And that that was that was a good deal. Willie Mitchell took us on, and and uh, when he had the opportunity to, to go into the studio, you know, we were right there with him. You know, and we did we did a lot of a, a lot of acapella things for the company and what have you. And uh, it was enjoyable. That 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 was like going down the road that I was hoping that I would have the opportunity to do. And well, uh, first of all, Willie got the opportunity to go in and uh, and record some things you know he got deeper and deeper into uh um the studio or recording in the studio as an engineer bringing once he got in as a producer he started had the opportunity to start bringing recorded my group folk king you know he recorded us and uh later on he got the opportunity to start bringing other artists in you know uh my wife Ann, she was a uh, Brought in by one of the musicians, Bowlegs Miller. He was he had a band there in Memphis, here in Memphis, and um, she was asked to do a number on a show of his. I didn't know if I really wanted to sing rhythm and blues. I knew that it, it was a love. I knew I wanted to be a professional singer, uh, and I know I I wanted to kind of move away from the choir. Uh, I started listening to uh, country and western jazz, uh, but when I really made a decision what I wanted to sing, I was in Memphis. I was 19. Went out to a club and just so happened Bowlegs Miller was playing there. He was the one that really, I'll say, discovered me. I wanted to sing, so I got up and they let me do a number, old song, Steal Away, and I did that song and from there I went to the studio the next day. Uh, Bowlegs asked me, have you ever wanted to record? And I do, you know, I said, yes, I do. Next thing I know, I'm at the studio meeting Willie Mitchell. And I think a week or so after that, signed a contract. And I, that's how I got my start. This is the green room. Uh, it's it's the color green, and we have the Reverend Al Green, big picture on the wall, looking at you, kind of like with the Jesus eyes. They kind of follow you, like <laughs> he's not wearing a shirt though. But anyway, so. <laughs> and the first record that was recorded with the perfected Willie Mitchell configuration was Al Green's "Tired of Being Alone." So if you listen to any record that came out of Royal or on the High Records label pre-1969, 1970, they all 
have a different sound and you can kind of hear the sound dialing in as the years go so Joe Coogie died in 1970 he willed his shares in high records in Royal to Willie Mitchell and let him t uh, let Willie Mitchell take over the day-to-day -day operations of running the uh, studio and the label after then there was uh, there was a string of about 26 gold and platinum records recorded consecutively. Um, Al Green, uh, the Detroit Emeralds, Denise LaSalle, Rod Stewart, and Peoples. I can't stand the rain. We was gonna go out to a concert. I think it was storming for some reason. We just decided we'd wait till it passed over and just start sit down at the piano and start just playing. Don play some melody. That, that was the, the, the ultimate song, really, you know, and, and I was an uh, man at, at high, and, and every artist that would come in, you know, that it was my job to find, have some material prepared for them if they would need something. Uh, and uh, I wanted to go to the concert I think I was the one that really, really wanted to go, and all, all of a sudden I said, I can't stand the rain. And so Don said, that's a good title. And we all laughed about it, and before we knew it, we sit down and start writing lines, put it together. Jokingly sometimes, when people would do a line like that, we'd say, good title for a song. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And then once you got everybody mind involved in it, you know, it, it, it was easier to do, you know. So uh, we stayed there at the house that night and, and wrote the song and finished it up. And the next day we took it to the studio and showed it to Willie and he said, hey. And that's what we came up with. And we thought it was so great. I think we called Willie and said, get to the studio, we got something. And he was there when we got there and he also thought it was a, a great song. Because Willie was the one that put the uh, the timbales on there, you know, for the introduction, which, which I think totally made the song. I can't stand the rain against my window Bringing back sweet memories Yeah, when the rain When John Lennon heard the uh, Can't Stand the Rain, he, he thought it was going to be, he said, it's the greatest song of the year. And uh, he said, I've always loved that little tiny, funny looking girl. And I did a show in California. I looked out in the audience and somebody just kept screaming my name and screaming, I love you, I love you. And I kept looking out saying, who is this? And I kept looking out and I saw him, but he had a sanitary napkin taped to his forehead <laughs> and he kept screaming and kept screaming I still I said who is that and somebody said that's John Lennon <laughs>
We're inside of the actual recording uh, floor, uh, the studio, and to the right here we have the Wall of Fame, which we started in 2012. Uh, it's because somebody painted over the old one. Uh, so the Beatles rehearsed here on their first North American tour in 64, uh, I think, because the Bill Black Combo was their opening act. it for a week and had signed one of the walls in the back and at some point in the 80s this little old man with a paint roller who was getting the place painted pop goes man go back there and tell that little man not to paint over those signatures on the wall. it was it was too late so uh i decided to start a new one um and so since 2012, we've got some amazing names and people that have been here. We have uh, Robert Plant, who signed his A Golden Moment in a House of Soul. I think that's awesome coming from the Golden God. Uh, Rizzo from the Wu-Tang Clan, uh, whose signature almost looks just like Robert Plant's, which is funny. There's Bob Skaggs. There's Sam Moore. There's... D.D. Bridgewater, Bobby Rush, Paul Rogers, Melissa Etheridge, Bruno Mars, Drake, Mystical, Snoop Dogg. Here's the piano. And here's one of the prized possessions of the studios, the Hammond, Reverend Charles Hodges Hammond B3 organ. Uh, it has been here since 1968. Um... This is the same organ that's on every Al Green record you've ever heard, every Otis Clay, Ann Peoples, Seal Johnson. Pretty much every record that you've heard, and some records that you haven't heard that you'll hear in a couple of months when they come out. <laughs> so we still use it. Um, it's just like... Uh, a, a rural studio stable. But this whole this first uh, little opening here was where uh, Teeny Hodges from the high rhythm section. This was call it Teeny's Corner. This is where he played all of those great guitar parts like Love and Happiness. And Love and Happiness. Something that can make you do wrong, make you do right. Yeah. Uh, and we still, you know, use it to record guitars to stay in. This is the vocal booth. A lot of cool microphones in here. The coolest one is the one in the corner with the nine on it. So that is the mic that all of Al Green's hit records were recorded on. Um, everything from Let's Stay Together.
How can you mend a broken heart? To, I don't know. Call me. I'm still in love with you. Take me to the river. To the room. This is the spot where we do bass. It's a, you know, Leroy's corner, Leroy Hodges. <laughs> <laughs> and we still record bass in the same, you know, we still do everything pretty much like Pop was doing it. Um, this drum shed is so awesome because that's one of the like secret ingredients of our drum sound. Uh, that is the same drum kit that's been on lots of Al Green records. Um. And all of the stuff you see here, this uh, fiberglass insulation hanging everywhere, lot, lots of burlap. Uh, this was stuff my dad did in, uh, you know, in 69 when he perfected the sound of the room. It was him putting this stuff on the walls and trying. To, he was trying to quiet the room and he just wanted his records to sound different. Uh, he didn't want it, you know, he didn't want his records to sound like Motown or anywhere else. Um, so I think most of the other studios were at, were going for more live rooms with wood and stuff like that, and Pop was going the opposite direction. <laughs> Over here we have Teenies. Okay, so on Love and Happiness, uh, the intro to Love and Happiness, make you do wrong, make you do right, and then it goes click, 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 and everybody's always wondered what that count-off is, and it's this old Coca-Cola crate, so it's... Memphis music scene was kind of changing. Disco was coming in. Uh, Stax had kind of been forced into bankruptcy in 75, so it was gone. Um, Elvis passed away in 77, and I think that was also the year that Al Green decided he wasn't singing secular music again. Um, so the partners in High Records at that time, the ownership had changed over the years to uh, Willie Mitchell, John Novarese, Nick Pesci, I think Frank Beretta. Uh, so I think in 78 they decided to sell uh, the label, you know, High Records or whatever. And my dad was, um, he wasn't in agreement with that decision. <laughs> but um, 
he wanted to, you know, I want to buy the studio. So he eventually, um, after a few years, ended up uh, buying Royal and just owning the studio outright. He ended up starting a label, Waylo Records, I think in 84. Um, and Ann Peoples was on the label, Otis Clay. Uh, there was a blues artist, Lynn White, that was a pretty successful blues artist. Um, it's another guy, Billy Always. So Pop kind of operated um, a, a record label out of out of Royal for probably about five or six years, I think. So I would come, I would spend all my summers down here. Um, and I think by the time I got 12 or 13, I was just completely bitten, you know, and I would watch my dad produce records and I wanted to do everything studio and kind of everything like my dad so we did Keith Richards first solo album in 88 you know so now I'm like hanging out with Keith Richards for 10 days or something I, I was on uh, I think I was on cigarette detail <laughs> <laughs> that was my job <laughs> make sure you didn't run out of Marlboro's One of the secret ingredients um, is the custom all-tube 8-track tape recorder. Pop had this made in, I think, 68. When 8-track tape recorders came out, they were a solid state, and Pop didn't like the way they sounded, so some dude in Texas made them an all-tube 8-track tape recorder, and it's one of the secret ingredients to the sound. <laughs> My dad, he never really changed the way he did things. I mean, he did to some extent with, you know, modern equipment was coming in, synthesizers and stuff. But it was, um, he just, he wasn't a quitter. And he was determined to keep the place open, no, you know, no matter what. He just had this, you know, I, I remember in the, God, it, in like in the 90s be sitting down here and you know phone wasn't ringing and you know and pop he would just be sitting at the desk and you know um he's like boo the the phone ain't ringing right now you say one day it's gonna ring though you know I, th I think the studio business as a whole um went through this really dark time uh, in the two thousand in the early 2000s when Pro Tools and all the digital media was coming out and people were like making records in their living room yeah and that went on I think for about four years I think uh, and we lost a lot of great recording studios The first time I met Don was actually at uh, Willie Mitchell's funeral service. And it was also the first time I ever played with uh, Howard Grimes, the drummer from the High Rhythm section. That day at Willie's service, uh, Boo asked that uh, 
he wanted to start the service off with the song, Everything's Gonna Be All Right. And Don sang, and uh, Howard played drums, and I had the opportunity to play bass. And it was a big honor for me. Willie was a great mentor and friend to me. You know, one, one thing about Willie Mitchell, and uh, we, had, we had the opportunity to, to play over at Royal a few weeks ago as part of their 60th anniversary. I was talking to uh, one of Willie's daughters, and she said, you know what, my, more than anything, you know what my father was? He was a teacher. It's very true, very, very true. Everyone I know who went there and worked there, he imparted something on everyone. No matter how little of amount of time you spent there, how much, he always taught you something. And, uh, you know, he made sure that his legacy was preserved, you know, and the family running the studio over there, you know, he made sure that he taught them how to do, how to make records. So, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing. And it's, uh, the Memphis sound is, is still alive. my voice sounds different again so now we're in the main control room uh, the control room was here from 57 till about 74 and in 74 they uh, built a state-of-the-art control room upstairs where you heard music coming from because my son's up there making tracks the studio stayed upstairs the, the control room stayed upstairs uh, probably until 88 and then in 89 we came back uh, down to the original uh, location and can modernize it a little bit. Uh, we have our MCI board uh, that came from Compass Point Studios in the Bahamas. So this board's from 77 and uh, around 2008-2009 that, man, recording in the living room sucks. And you know, we should just save our money and go to a real studio. And uh, I think that's what's going on. Why, like why vintage studios are in the, you know this big renaissance right now is because people are realizing, hey, come to a real studio, it's gonna sound awesome. And you know, music is forever. So you should, if you you know, invest in yourself <laughs> um, and do it right. It's just a great place to come, you know, when people are looking to have make a record, you know, they want it to be something that's going to last and, you know, work somewhere with that kind of history and people who have that knowledge of making those records, I think you'll get that. Memphis is a very unique place and it has such um, deep musical legacy, right? It's different than Dallas. It's different than Atlanta. It's different than all these different places. Um, their musical heritage, the people who came before them and made music that will last forever right in their own neighborhoods, right, <laughs> is unbelievable. Uh, I'm Amber Hamilton. Uh, I'm the Chief Operating Officer at the Memphis Music Initiative. 
The Memphis Music Initiative is very much focused on investing in young people, right? Transformative music engagement experiences, youth development, all of the really important things that young people need to keep them motivated, to keep them excited about things that they care about. I was looking for a nonprofit, you know, somebody that we we could partner with that kind of made sense on all levels for us. We do a lot of stuff with kids a couple of times a year. The Stax Academy comes and records stuff, and we do a lot of tours. You know, we wanted something that kind of just fit into our program. And when I found out about MMI, they were like doing doing all the things that we thought needed to be done within the schools, without in out of the schools and in the community. So it was kind of like a match made in heaven for us to find out of their existence and find out the awesome things that they were doing. And so, I, I don't know, we just got really excited about it and we're glad to have a partner. Well, for us, it's it's really the ultimate asset to be able to work and partner with Royal Studios. I mean, who has this in their backyard, <laughs> right? But who who has this literally in the neighborhood in their backyard? This asset where so many stars have recorded songs that will live on forever and ever. This is like the ultimate gem to have, literally have in your backyard. Oh yes. Um so we've got we've got like three signature events and we're doing a Papa Willie's night. It's gonna be dedicated to Willie Mitchell and his instrumental music. We have the Bo Keys performing. It's gonna be a, a real kind of full circle thing to be performing those songs with him, you know, at Royal. Along with that, my aunt Yvonne, who is like my secret weapon for doing all this music, uh, she's been cooking soul food dinners for like famous recording artists, well, all her life, but more specifically for clients that I have in the studio since 2012. And it's kind of a tradition that we started with Bob Skaggs uh, when we were making his album. And she's cooked for Bruno Mars and Melissa Etheridge and uh, Robert Cray and a whole host of people. So she's going to um, do one of her famous soul food dinners that night. That's the first event. It's a ticketed event. The next one we're doing uh, at the Levitt Shell, it'll be you know more community focused. It'll, it'll be a free event, open to the public, and that's going to be October 14th. And that will be there will be a lot of local talent, a lot of regional talent, and some national acts. And then our flagship event will be November the 18th at the Orpheum, and that's going to be our star-studded. I'm asking everybody that has ever recorded it role to come and sing a song. So if we just get a fraction of those people, it'll be an awesome show. <laughs> you know, we're really excited to do these events. We're excited to be 60 years old. Um, and we're excited to do all of these wonderful things in Memphis. And, you know, it, it's it's our 60th anniversary. And, you know, but it, it's, it's still about lifting Memphis up. So, you know, anything that is good for Royal is good for Memphis and vice versa. So, so when you look at really the history of Memphis and how um, organizations like Royal have endured for 60 years, I mean, that's incredible. And the common factor that you see is people 
from all backgrounds and ethnicities coming together for a common cause. You see there's a legacy of entrepreneurship. There's a legacy of creativity. Uh, how do you define what that Delta Memphis sound is in 2017, right? There's a, there's a real um, alchemy of coming together of all these pieces. And as we talked about, I think the Memphis heat probably bakes it all in. <laughs> it's li right. It's literally the, <laughs> the oven that bakes it all into you. This has been an independent production of Sonosphere, produced by Amy S. and Chris Williams, in partnership with the Rock and Soul Museum and Memphis Musicology Podcast. Check us out at sonospherepodcast.com. Subscribe on iTunes and check us out on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening. I'm so in love with you. Whatever you want to do is all right with me. Thank you.